Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we're just going to read the first five verses. We're still, in a sense, going to be in introduction mode uh, to this book. If you missed last week, um, most of you know this, you can always go on the website, uh, www dot sgaberdeen.org and you can watch any of the sermons back and uh, I don't always uh, say it's necessary to go back and and do that but beginning a book study that we're going to be in for months it might be helpful to go back and and look at some of the things we talked about uh, last week in the and, and really get the feel for what Paul uh, is dealing with when he writes this letter. But uh, for our scripture reading, we're going to look at uh, the first five verses here in Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that in Your grace You would Give us life through Your Word this morning that You would strengthen our faith. That the love in our hearts that might seem cold would might be inflamed, Lord. God, I pray that our affections for You and our love for You and our thirst and desire for You might be strengthened as we once again consider this great news that has been given us uh, in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Lord, I pray You help us now that uh, this would be practical to our lives. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to begin with this morning... I want to start by reading a little bit out of a children's book that uh, I highly recommend. We started this a few weeks ago uh, with our children. I think we got to get more of them down in our bookstore. Um, we'll get more ordered up. But it's The Radical Book for Kids. And I've just uh, really enjoyed it so far. And uh, we've done a lot of good children's books, but I'd really recommend this one. But uh, this week, in chapter 4 of this book, uh, the title of the chapter was Great News. And it began with the multiple choice question. I was never very good at multiple choice questions, especially when they would say, choose the best answer. That seemed like such a ripoff because it seemed so subjective. But listen to this question, and I'd submit to you that I think many of people who consider themselves Christians might stumble over this question. The question is this, what do you think it means to be a Christian? A, I'm a nice person. B, I go to church on Sunday. C, I try to obey God and obey my parents. Right there, my children are like, oh, (laughs) they think they know. D, I read my Bible and pray almost every day. E, none of the above. Well, we'll come back to the answer in a minute, but let me read a little bit of the devotional now. Sometimes when you ask people, 
Do you want to become a Christian? They reply, I'm not ready. There are many parts of my life I need to fix first. Then I'll become a Christian. This person thinks that being a Christian means you have to be good enough and obey the Bible more. They think Christianity is all about following the good advice that Jesus gave. But they are wrong. At its heart, Christianity is not good advice. It's good news. Advice tells you something that would be good to do. It has not happened yet. News tells you something that has already happened. There is nothing you can do about it. And then here's the illustration uh, the author of this book gives. Here's an example. Pretend that you lived in a castle in the days of knights and kingdoms. One day an enemy king invades, marching his army into your kingdom. So your king gathers his army and goes out to meet the enemy on the field of battle, miles from the castle. And now you and everyone in the castle await word from the battlefield. Did the king win or did the king lose? If your king has lost, he'll send back soldiers who will give advice about how to prepare the castle for enemy invasion. And you and the other citizens will get ready to fight for your lives. You will set up extra protection and weapons, but will it be enough? Fear and dread will fill the hearts of everyone in the castle. But... If your king is one, he will send back messengers who will announce the wonderful news of the victory. You and the rest of the citizens in the castle can enjoy normal active lives. Joy and peace will fill everyone's heart. You see, Christianity announces the greatest news in the history of the universe. The gospel of Jesus Christ. He has already come to earth and completely defeated all our enemies. Sin, death, and Satan. The battle has been fought and won. And there is nothing for you to do except live your lives in joy and peace and rely on the victory He has accomplished for you. In other words, the gospel is the announcement that through the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus, God is settling or setting every right again, including men and women who are repenting and relying on this King as their only rescuer from sin. By now it should be clear that Christianity is not a religion that has a list of advice for you to do. No, instead, Christianity brings news of what Jesus has already done. It's not about the accomplishment of your good works. It's about, about the announcement of His good works. And so the lesson in this short little chapter to my children is having them consider what is Christianity? Is it mainly good advice for what we ought to do? Definitely, Scripture gives us advice, but what's at the heartbeat of the Bible? It's news that victory has already been won. Very different from every other religion in the world. And when God does give advice to us, when God does tell us what to do, it is never to give advice so that we can earn our salvation, but rather it's the type of advice a father would give his child for their good and and for their joy. It's easy. You might think, well, that's elementary. I knew all that. I'm going to argue with you the next few months 
that moment by moment throughout your day, you're going to be tempted to believe in religion rather than in the good news of Christ. You're going to seek to please God by your good works rather than by your trust in His provision uh, for you. I was just talking to one of my buddies uh, about a week ago, and he was uh, in contact with uh, a person doing a musical thing um, in Pier, and uh, this particular lady was a minister of a church in Pier, and it was right before Christmas, and she, she said to him, she said, I love Christmas. And, and my buddy says, well, why do you love Christmas? And she says, well, it's so comforting to know that as long as we do our best, God will always have our back and protect us. And my buddy, just being clever as could be and, and sharp, said, then what do we need Jesus for? And she was kind of taken back. Well, what do you mean? You know, she's just trying to have friendly Christmas conversation. And his question is, is what do we need Jesus for if the good news of Christianity is do your best and then God will take care of you? It's a misunderstanding of at the root what Christianity is. And this is uh, something that Paul in this letter is willing to give his life for is to protect the good news of the gospel. So, uh, quick review from last week. Uh, last week we looked uh, basically at Acts chapters 13 uh, and 14, and we kind of peeked into chapter 15. And, and there we have the account of Paul's first missionary journey to the southern parts of Galatia. And uh, I'll, ju- I'll just remind you of a few verses. So Paul and Barnabas go on this missionary journey, and the, they come into uh, Antioch, uh, P- P- Pisidia, and you might get mixed up because Paul leaves Antioch in Syria, but then there's Antioch in, in Pisidia, and they're two different places. So he leaves Antioch in Syria, comes uh, up into uh, Galatia, and when he lands uh, there, they immediately go to the synagogue and they hear uh, reading from the prophets at the synagogue. And as soon as they go through their normal synagogue procedure, uh, those running the synagogue asked them, do you guys have any words of encouragement? And then Paul stands up and he basically preaches the gospel. Uh, sp- tells these Jews that Jesus is the culmination of everything they've been hoping for. He's their Messiah. And, and this is the result of this. In chapter 13, verse 42, here's what we read. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So here's what we looked at last week. What's going on in these churches is devout Jews and devout converts to Judaism, when they heard the gospel wanted to follow Paul and Barnabas. And this would have created controversy big time in these uh, towns in, in southern Galatia. Because those who had always been about following the law were, who were now turning to grace would have created conflict between those who think this gospel is destroying true salvation. Many Judaizers, people who thought you couldn't be saved apart from the law of God, 
would be furious with Paul and Barnabas. So what we saw is, as they move on uh, to Iconium and into Lystra and Derby, as they move on in their missionary journey, some of the first ones from Antioch, uh, Pisidia, they gather a group to follow them, and they eventually find them, and they stone Paul. They stone Paul for this message of grace. And then here's what we read in, in uh, chapter 14, verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, this is right after Paul was stoned, he starts to go back to the place where these, his enemies lived. When he had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. You see, this is the theme. The first time he got, had Jewish people following him, he said, be careful that you continue in the faith. He knew their hearts. He knew they were going to go back to the works of the law to try to earn their own salvation. He knew that this is what their opponents would want them to do. He knew that this was at the core of the fallen human heart. And and so he says, he went back through these cities, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord whom they had believed. So as Paul leaves these disciples, he's already come back to encourage them. He warned them, continue in the faith. Well, then as Paul returns to Antioch and Syria, he hears word that those first original disciples have begun to believe something that was not actually the gospel. That false teachers had come in and begin to pervert the gospel of grace. So this is what brought about this letter that uh, Paul wrote. And, and so you can imagine the tension. Paul warned them through many trials and tribulations, you must enter through, enter into the kingdom of God. If you're going to continue to believe in the God who saves by grace, he knew it was going to cost his disciples. And remember last week how we talked about all the way back to the garden, Satan has been railing against the grace of God. Uh, Cain kills Abel. Abel's sacrifice was offered by grace. All the way through the Old Testament, you see the seed of the serpent, Satan, hating the grace of God. And the lie he tells men is that you can do it on your own apart from God. You don't have to rely on Him. And then in Acts 15, I just let, let me read these two verses. Verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is chapter 15 of Acts. This is after Paul writes this letter, but it helps us understand what he was dealing with. So there's people who said the only way you can be saved is you need to trust in Jesus plus be circumcised, plus follow the law. And then in verse 5 of, of chapter 15, we, we get a little more information. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order or to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so what we want to do this morning is look at at who these opponents are that Paul has that occasioned this letter. What were they accusing Paul of? And so we're going to look at three things that we can gather from this letter 
and from Acts that the opponents would have been accusing Paul of, and hopefully we'll find some good application for our lives. So the main charge of the message is to stand your ground and fight the fight of faith as we see evidenced by the Apostle Paul. So what were these enemies like? They were Jews who were believing in Christ and wanted and were arguing that you also had to keep the law in, only, in order to be a part of the people of God. And here's what they accused Paul of. Number one, they said he had a human message. They accused him of having a human message, that his message was derived from human beings, either from himself or from other people who had distorted the true message of God. John Stott writes, having undermined Paul's gospel, they proceeded to undermine his authority. In a sense, they were saying, who is this Paul anyways? Is he an apostle or is he an imposter? So one of the things Paul deals with in his letter is he defends his authority. People are saying, who is he? Why should we listen to him anyways? Why should you listen to this Paul and Barnabas that just kind of flew through here twice? They've, their, their authority has been challenged. Look at verse 1 of Galatians 1. Paul, what does it say? An apostle. Galatians 1.1. Paul, an apostle. What does it say? Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. You see it? Very first thing he says is he says, I'm an apostle, not from men, but from God. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, nor did I receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, I am an apostle from God, not from men. I'm not a man-made apostle. And the message I had wasn't man's message. It was God's message. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. He's saying any influential person in Christianity or anywhere else doesn't add anything to the authenticity of who he is. He says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles that they uh, and they to the circumcised. Here's his argument. He says, the other apostles, they didn't authenticate me. They recognized that the same grace they had received, he had received. That he had been made an apostle by Christ. And so the thing I want us to remember is the very thing Paul knew is that 
is to remember whose gospel it is. This matters big time. Let me give you an example. If you get an email that says, congratulations, you've won a million dollars, someone's left you a million dollars, all you need to do is reply to this email with your bank account number and passwords, and they'll wire that to your account. No one in here is going to get excited. No one's going to come home from work and say, honey, you won't believe it. We're going to look at our bank account tonight and there's going to be a million dollars in there. Because the source of the good news is from a criminal or from a crook. But Paul's point is, is he says, I'm preaching you good news that doesn't come from man. It comes from God. And this is so practical because when you're walking through your normal everyday life, and you're trying to fight the fight of faith, believing the gospel, you better believe it's the gospel that came from God and not from Sam, or you're not going to trust in it much. Paul's argument is, it's not my gospel. I didn't declare my own authority. I was gifted these things. That's why in 1 Thessalonians, Paul calls it the gospel of God. In 1 Thessalonians 3.2, in the gospel of Christ. Peter called it the gospel of God. Mark called it the gospel of God. It's good news from God. One of the most practical things we can remember. When you trust in the gospel, you're not trusting in a promise that can be broken. You're not getting this information from some place that is untrustworthy. But Paul's opponents, as we'll see when we're going through this letter, were attacking his message, saying it was a human message. And Paul says, wrong. This message is from God. The second thing, the opponents were charging him with is that he had a distorted message. First, it was a human message. Now they're saying his message is distorted. They seem to have argued that Paul distorted this gospel when he came to Galatia because he did not insist on the validity of the law and the necessity of circumcision. Now, we don't want to just paint a straw man. man. You might have been one of the people who would have said, there's no way Paul can be true. You might have had Genesis 17 memorized. We'll look at some of those verses in a minute. And Genesis 17 said, there's no part in the people of God unless you're circumcised and here Paul is in town saying you don't have to be circumcised to be a part of the people of God. You might have been one of the opponents. So how would their argument have gone? Here's what Stott says. They contradicted his gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, insisting that for salvation, more than faith in Christ Jesus was needed. You had to be circumcised as well. They said, keep all the law of Moses. So I believe when these Judaizers were saying you have to be circumcised, they're saying more than just that. This is the entrance into the law. This, this is what it means to be in, in the line of Abraham and Moses to them. So if they say you need to be circumcised, they're saying you've got to keep the whole law. <clears throat> Where do we see evidences of, of this in, in Galatians that we would think this is what he was being accused of? Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if even we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul says, this is amazing. I just left you, and in short order, you're already leaving the good news. The good news you heard in the synagogue that morning, that you were saved by grace, you are now being deceived by people who have come in to distort this gospel. In Galatians 2.3, look at what he says. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false teachers, or, but because false brothers secretly brought in, who, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So he says there was false brothers, those who seemed to be Christians, who slipped in to spy out their freedom. What is this grace stuff? What is this? We're now under grace and not the law. They slipped in to spy out our freedom. I love what he says. I can't wait to preach through this in chapter 2. But he says, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why not? Why didn't he yield to these people? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, Paul knew that if you lose the greatest news in the world, there's no more good news coming. There's salvation in no one else. There is no other Redeemer. And so he says, we didn't yield to this false gospel even for a moment because we wanted to preserve the good news for you. And then in Galatians 5, verse 5, for through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. See, we can see that he was being accused of not teaching circumcision because he says circumcision or uncircumcision means nothing except faith working through love. I love his argument there. We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Remember what justification is? It's that Jesus' good works, His perfect sinful life, is a gift called righteousness. And the good news of the Gospel is, is that His righteousness is handed over to you as a gift of grace, not to be earned. Only those who Look to God for salvation. Look for His righteousness in Christ. Jesus' gift of righteousness transferred to the believer's account. The believer's sinful life transferred to Jesus' account. Jesus goes to the cross and dies under the wrath of God because this transition has been made. He bore not His sins on the cross, but our sins on the cross. And so what Paul's saying is we're waiting 
for our hope of righteousness, Christ to return. He knows that his righteousness is coming as a gift from God. He says, therefore, circumcision, non-circumcision, nothing. Only faith, only hope in that righteousness, not circumcision. And then if you look at chapter 6, verse 12, Here's what he says about his opponents. He says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. He says the opponents, they want you to be circumcised. They get their identity in their good works and their circumcision in their supposed law-keeping. He says the funny thing is, is none of them keep the law. See, it's all a sham. And so he begins to give us information about what these opponents were like. They want to boast in your flesh. You see, if you... If you're going to preach grace, then that makes my works look like no big deal. Then it's not about me anymore. But if I can convince everyone else it's about works, well, now I do my works better than you. Boast in my works. This is, this is what motivates the self-righteous person. Here's what, here's what Tom Schreiner says of the Judaizers. Remember, why, we, why are we doing this? We want to understand what these opponents were saying if we're going to understand how to interpret this letter. Why did he write this letter? What were they saying? Here's what Tom Schreiner says. He says, he's a professor at the seminary I go to, the Judaizers likely argued that circumcision was necessary for salvation. Burton sums up their opinion aptly. Their whole argument may very well have been based on the 17th chapter of Genesis. And if their premise that the Old Testament is the permanent authority to be granted, there is no escape from their conclusion. So if you want to know their argument, turn to Genesis 17. Here's what they would have said. We'll just look at a couple of these verses. Genesis 17 Starting in verse 10, they likely would have come with their Bibles open and, and said, have you forgotten what God told Abraham? Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, even the Gentiles that come in, they better be circumcised. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. So they would say, see, circumcision never goes away. It's an everlasting covenant. And then in verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so, it's from these verses, the Judaizers likely argued, it has to be Jesus plus circumcision because nobody gets in unless you're circumcised according to our Scripture. That's how they would have argued. Unfortunately, they didn't see how all the promises to Abraham climax in fulfillment in this offspring who was Abraham's offspring singular, that through him 
salvation would come. That the circumcision we need is not just merely an outward fleshy sign, but we need a circumcision of the heart that only the Spirit can do, that hands can never do. So before we just think they're stupid, if you tend towards to be a little legalistic, and you might have been right in their boat and say this freewheeling grace guy, Paul, who is he? What is this message that he's brought? And so we need to apply this to our lives by remembering what the Gospel is. The second you add, here's what you do to earn your right standing with God, you're in trouble. Because the James tells us if you break the law at one point, if you keep the whole law perfectly, but you break it at one point, you break the whole law. So good luck in that endeavor. There is no good news in trying to be a better person than that dog that you work next to. See, that's not good news. We're being fooled when we think we're getting in because we're a little better than that person. We need a perfect substitute to take our place. We need the grace of God. Thirdly, they would accuse Paul of having a cowardly message. That Paul was a man seeking to avoid persecution. It's kind of laughable what we know about the Apostle Paul. But the reason why we think this is what they were saying is look at Galatians 5, verse 11. Here's what Paul says. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision... So, it seems like they're saying Paul still preaches circumcision. He just shows up in Galatia where all the Gentiles are, where circumcision is unpopular, and he changes his message for them. That's what it seems like they're accusing him of. And here's what he says. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Their argument must be, well, he doesn't want to be persecuted by the Gentiles. So when he comes to them, he says, no, you don't have to be circumcised. It's only by the grace of God. He comes to the Jews, and then it's more popular. Then he's going to go that route. But he says, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Here's what the Apostle Paul knew. The Gospel is offensive to every human being. And if you want to avoid circumcision, I mean, or persecution, preaching the Gospel of grace is not a good way to do it. Because the gospel offends man like nothing else could offend man. You might say, well, how is that? Let me give you a a few reasons. Number one, it exposes the devastating state of our nature. So the gospel is God and His love sent His Son down to this earth and was offering grace to sinners. But there's this circumstance where this innocent man, the Son of God, is beaten beyond semblance, tortured, the worst Roman type of torture there was, crucifixion. He's hanging on the cross, and if someone was going to come up and say, what a horrible situation this is not only for a human being to be treated like this, but this is God's own Son. They're spitting on Him and they're mocking Him. Put a crown of thorns on Him. How? Why are we in this horrible situation where the Son of God is being treated like this? You know what the answer is? You. See it's offensive, isn't it? Someone would say, well, why, why would this ever have to happen? Because 
of the horror of our sin. You see, you look at what it takes to be redeemed and you learn something about your rebellion. See, we think of sin as mistakes, not that big a deal. Well, when the Son of God is bleeding and dying on the cross and taking the wrath of God upon Himself, we find out how rotten we are to the core in our rebellion against God. The gospel is offensive to self-righteous man. Every other religion says the good ones get in. Christianity says the ones who know they're rotten and look to by faith to the one hope of, of salvation, they're the ones. That's why Jesus said the prostitutes are getting in before you Pharisees that are the most religious people around. They had so far to go because they had no clue of what they were inside. Paul says, the reason why I'm still being persecuted is because I'm preaching the gospel. And fallen, self-righteous people hate grace because it makes them and their works look like they don't matter. Remember that the gospel will offend. The gospel offends man. It offends Satan. When Jesus is dying on that cross, it's the culmination of Satan's demise. <laughs> when he pays for sins, Satan's only weapon he has is accusation of your sin and the fear of death. And when Jesus died on the cross and raised, rose from the dead, and Satan comes to attack you and point out your sin and scare you with death. He really doesn't have a sword when you're trusting in Christ by faith because your sins are taken care of and His resurrection is the guarantee of your resurrection. Satan hates the gospel. Man is offended by the gospel and is contrary to the world's system. Right? You only reward good. If you reward bad, what will that do? You see, the gospel of the kingdom of God flips the world on its head. It's the humble who are raised up and, and made great. It's the servant is greater, is the greatest in the kingdom of God, not the master commanding orders. Everything's flipped on its head. So remember that if you stick with this gospel, don't be surprised when the fiery trials come upon you. Man is offended by the gospel. Satan's offended by the gospel. The world is offended by the gospel. And in conclusion, I just have this little chart at the bottom. So as... We set forth into this letter next week. I don't want you to think that this is some theological thing we just do because it's fun or so we can be smart. I want you to see how practical this is. This is, this is just my attempt at doing this. If you look at this little chart on your notes, I'm arguing there's two ways to live. By faith in the gospel... And I call it a fight of faith because it's not easy. It's moment by moment. Paul describes his life as a fight of faith or works righteousness. That's what the world is trying to do. Those who are living by faith will read the Scripture, which will point them to the Gospel, remember what Christ has already done, Remember, it's not mainly good advice. It's good news. The king has won. And a person will repent as they see this amazing grace. And they'll turn to life. But the works righteousness person will always compare his life to others. So rather than read the Bible and about grace, they're going to compare 
regret and grade. Probably compare grade and regret. They're always going to fall short. When the person of faith is going to pray to seek God for strength in his day, the works righteousness person's going to jump right into their work because they find their hope in and of themselves. One person is trusting in the grace of God and the power supplies by the Spirit. The other person just has to get going, just make their life better. While the person of faith worships in light of this grace, the person of works righteousness loathes their failures where they continue to not be able to measure up. When the person of faith rests in the intrinsic value gifted to them, a person who's a Christian living by faith recognizes that their identity in Christ is a gift to them. They never had to earn it for a second. And if they never had to earn it, it can't just be taken away. While the person who lives according to their perceived value, has this picture of what a good person is and is always trying to make it, but can never do it. Two lives look totally different. The person of faith can joyfully work and obey and fight sin because they're not doing it to be saved. They're doing it as a result of this amazing grace to want to serve God while the person of works righteousness begins to give up as they realize, I'm never going to be able to measure up. And ultimately, the person of faith has the ability to love others and be selfless while the works righteousness person, because they're constantly looking in at their failure and hopelessness, they become so inward focused, they don't even recognize what's going on to the people around them. The person who knows the grace of God and is living according to it by faith is able to look away from themselves. This has all been taken care of. God has given me grace. And now I can overflow and recognize people around me and love them. So what's at stake? Two different types of lives. Being an angry father or being a father who worships in front of your children. It gets so practical. And we're called to live by faith. Not just get saved by faith, but to live moment by moment in the truth of the gospel. And when we do that, we will be changed. And people will recognize the change. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for apostles like the Apostle Paul that loved us so much that he would give his life to fight for this grace not to be perverted into a works righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would help our hearts as it's so easy for us to think that You love us because we're good. Lord, remind us of the Gospel that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You looked down and had mercy on sinners who could not help themselves. Lord, we love You. Help our hearts. Love You more. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.